Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website. And you're on Triple R with Fee Wright, filling in for Beth AQ on The Glass House today. Coming up in the next hour, we'll be speaking with Dr. Jane Connery regarding her analysis of menstrual product advertising and with Dr. Brian Martin regarding the exhibition Tree Story that's currently on at the Monash University Museum of Art. I, st- I stumble over that every time. Muma? Muma. Dr. Jane Connery has curated the Sanitary Secrets exhibition as part of um, her research exploring the visibility and diversity of women in design. She is a lecturer at Swinburne University School of Design and has held positions as the National Head of Research and Insight at the Design Institute of Australia, the Vice President of Creative Women's Circle and also the coordinator of the Emerging Scholars Program at the Taylor and Francis Journal. She's analysed over 100 years of women's uh, menstrual products advertising and is joining me today to discuss her findings. Dr Connery, thank you so much for coming on air today. Hello, my pleasure. And it can just be Jane, that's okay. (laughs) Oh, okay. All right. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, Very good to know. Um, I guess... The first place to start um, with is what was the initial seed that made you decide to dig into this research and pick this this topic? Well, there was two avenues of thought. One is um, I have a teenage daughter and um, (laughs) (laughs) she's older teenage now, but, um, you know, my mum could never say the word period to me and um, really struggled with period shame herself um, to educate me and I always felt uncomfortable around it um, until I started getting my education and and feminist education really and um, realising the truth about it all which certainly isn't something we get through the media but um, I was also as a researcher looking at, I've also been a graphic designer for a hundred years but um, (laughs) I was looking at at the, the harm that graphic designers can create through advertising with um, generate not generating stereotypes but relying on them and not questioning them and the, the harmful norms that that can happen. So I was um, looking at the lack of empathy that designers often have and trying to find examples of that in for my own teaching and um, period product ads were such a good example to, to show emerging designers what not to do (laughs) um, when it comes to creating visual imagery that can be harmful and um, yeah I spent my COVID lockdown going to a fabulous online archive at the State Library finding all these ads. Because that's what I was wondering because throughout this piece in the conversation there's some amazing illustrations and um, work throughout it all of these old ads and I was I was really interested as to how you found them all. Yeah, yeah. Um, the State Library um, is amazing what it has online. Um, they have a newspaper section and it went right back to 1920. The Bulletin had a female sort of magazine oh. um, called the Australian Women's Mirror. And so I started there and um, just started flicking through and they were quite evident um, right through their collection includes the Australian Women's Weekly. So that mm. went right up to the 
80s, um, when it's sunny, because a lot of things were almost beginning to be digitalised then and um, magazine sales dropped, so I had to get onto eBay and find <laughs> 80s, 90s and 2000s old um, Dolly magazines and stuff to complete my collection of 100 years of ads. But, yeah, it wasn't that difficult. My first uh, memory of someone discussing periods openly um, was... Basically, Judy Bloom. I obviously Judy and I are close personal <laughs> friends. Um, no, no. In I think it was. Are you there, God? It's it's me, Margaret. She goes through yeah. a pretty um, uh, open discussion of experiences about receiving or, or having your period for the first time. And when reading your article, it's funny you mentioned Dolly just then. It made me think about all the impactful magazine advertising I was having. So at one point, I'm hanging out with Judy there, and and at the other point, I'm flipping through. Um, Dolly when I was a child and a teenager and it's I'm very interested now as to what how do you feel the prevalence of of um of online advertising such as say um Instagram as as an alternative medium because magazine sales are are dropping as you mentioned how do you feel that that Instagram has has influenced um period product advertising in a very positive way. I mean, the theme that I saw emerging in period product advertising, or pad ads as I mm. call them, um, is that sustainability is a big issue and it is a big issue amongst the younger generation. You know, they don't mm. know if the world's going to continue just for them to grow <laughs> old. And so things like menstrual cups and the underwear, um, they're, they're everywhere. And, and engaging with these brands doing this research, they do a lot of um, advertising through influencers, um, not, you know, pay, well, they are paid channels of advertising, but not, you know, Facebook ads or anything. It's these influencers sort of talking freely about the products and how mm. they use them. And, and um, I think it's a very healthy way for this sort of messaging to continue developing to um, bypass that shame and stigma that has existed in the past where, you know, ad agencies forever, for decades and decades, have been run by men and the creative has been written and the visuals have been created by men. And I think that lack of diversity in the studios has... Mm contributed to these um, harmful norms too. They they didn't question it or understand the user properly but, um, you know, female or uh, people um, we know not just um, outward appearing females have periods. Um, mm. The transgender community also experience them and so, you know, even that is something that's talked about openly on things like Instagram and influencers engaging with these products. It's great. When I first looked at some of these ads in, in the article, my initial instinct was to to laugh as, as some of them are quite, quite frankly, terrible. I think one ad refers to menstruation as nature's handicap um, yes. from, from memory. But, but then after that kind of initial like instinctive, oh, look at how silly that is, I found myself then feeling quite angry about how women were treated. Or, and as you pointed out, um, not just women... Um, have have menstrual cycles both uh non-binary and trans people can also experience that but you know it's 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 something that's a natural part of life and I just found myself getting quite quite angry like about it as I was considering it over time with you know um you discussed your mum perhaps not being able to say the word period you know I can think about with you know family and family friends similar sorts of experiences did you experience a similar sort of anger when you were putting together this exhibition and also writing this article um 
maybe, you know, those stages of grief, <laughs> dealing with it. <laughs> on, on the other side, I was surprised with how readily everyone who I engaged with creating this exhibition wanted to talk about it all. Mm. Like from the lady at Officeworks who was printing out the big posters for the exhibition, she would have been maybe in her 60s and mm. picked them up and had a good look and wanted to chit-chat about the research and I just thought that's really exciting. Um, I'm very lucky enough to have a lady help me with my ironing and she saw me working on the catalog <laughs> and she, you know, an elderly Greek lady and she was like, oh, tell me more about this, Jane. And um, I kind of feel like even, you know, every generation's at a point where if you want to talk about it or talk openly about it, the conversation's ready to be had. Like mm. it's the people who try and shame that are uh, uh, not normal now in a mm. way. Um, so I think it wasn't a lot of anger I experienced. It was a mm. lot of um, happy shock that people wanted to engage so much mm. with this conversation. It was great. You mentioned in your article that a lot of these ads um, from the past created unrealistic expectations as to how um, menstruating people should look and feel. Do you feel, again, with the Instagram um, influence perhaps, there's been a strong shift in relation to perhaps less policing of women and how they should be, or women and uh, trans and non-binary people should be feeling during their cycles? Yeah, it's an interesting point. Like, um, one of the two of the last two ads in the collection of a hundred ads. One's a Cotton's brand, and it's an illustration of a person. So it's the gender of that person's kind of not distinct. You can't quite tell if it's a male or female. Mm. And um, you know, I think that's great that it doesn't gender that expectation of that experience. Um, the uh, there's a menstrual cup lunette that has actually holds the product and the the hand, although white, is um, has uh, dark red fingernail polish. And I just think these little incremental steps, like there's no red in any of the ads until that point. Um, but the reference to blood is, is excluded or censored from the visual language. So mm. I think, you know, we're moving towards a better visual language to discuss that and, and change that... Um, expectation of how a woman should appear and feel. Um, you know, there's one black woman in a think set, I think, later on in the collection of 100 ads too. Um, you know, this colour white is quite dominant in the ads and, you know, the idea that women should be pure and untainted and, you know, it even moves into race in that um, in that messaging as well. So it's good to see that uh yeah, those messages are being pushed aside. <laughs> but, yes. You know, it's all kinds of people um, that do experience it. But I, I don't know if you, it was published in the paper, but there's a fabulous ad where there's a girl and she's in three white outfits, including a completely crocheted onesie in white. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's what we all wear when we're on our period. <laughs> It's it's so funny as you were talking um, and you talked about the the lack uh, the lack of the color red as you as you were speaking I had like a, a childhood memory flashback to seeing some ad on TV um, with what uh, my family used to refer to or my brother I think used to call the blue Gatorade where the blue Gatorade would be tipped onto the the pad to show its um its absorbency and how advertisers just really liked blue. They just really, they just really liked blue as you were um, 
discussing that then. Anyway, that was just a bit of a side. Um, you mentioned but that's absolutely part of that that visual language that they mm. use to censor red was that they use white or blue. They're mm. the dominant colours right through the hundred years. Even when it's black and white, they talk about a blue thread in the products to show which way is up. Like that, anything mm. that's the opposite of red is quite interesting. You um you quote Ira Teresi and the moral imperative of cleanliness, and then you also inform the reader as to the origins of the term sanitary products, which was something that I had never thought about before. Would you mind um, unpacking both the the quote just a little bit, and then also the history of the term sanitary products, because it was something that I had never really um, thought twice about. But then I was in the supermarket last night after having read your article and seeing the title of sanitary products here. You know, just made me think it was just so interesting that I'd never considered something that's everywhere in society. Yeah, well, um, I don't have the article in front of me. How hilarious is that? But, um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for putting you on the spot. Do you want me to find the, <laughs> the quote? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, the themes in the beginning of these ads was that periods were a medical issue. And so being clean and um, sanitary was huge in the early 1900s, yeah? Mm. Um, the germ theory was just sort of, you know, being created a few decades before. And, um, yeah, sanitary products were all about being clean and they were manufactured by people who created medical supplies too, like Johnson & Johnson created mm. um bandages and it was these ads actually show that in the 1940s there was a lack of pads available for women because all the bandages went to the war so women had to do without um manufactured help and had to make do with rags and such um as well but um when it comes to the idea of cleanliness as well this is kind of the point i was unpacking before is that you know, women in, in Western society, and there are different cultures where um, the attitudes towards periods are very different. This research is very much based in Australian culture and Australian women's magazines, so I think it's important to, to highlight that. But, mm. you know, um, from the 1920s, you know, the Indigenous population was um, declining and... You know, if they were around these magazines that I took things from, um, they were often cleaners or helpers in the house as well. And the attitude in, like, the bulletin towards Indigenous Australians was just horrific <laughs> to read the context that these ads sat around. Mm. But, yeah, the, the fact that white was inferior, that white was clean, clean, that women, yeah, should never be seen to be uncomfortable or dirty in any way. Um, it's definitely a message that has continued right, right through. And it's, yeah, there's theories about um, gender equity in that um, that creates a lot of that inequity is that there's these expectations for women to be one particular way when we know we're all crazy all sorts of ways. <laughs> During, during your, your um, piece, you, you discuss a study from the Vic Women's Trust which states that uh, women wish to be able to discuss their periods more openly and that by doing so it's thought that it will help end stigma and shame for women. Do you, do you feel that societal attitudes are catching up with this research? You mentioned some, some anecdotal experiences of some women in your life that were interested as you were preparing for the, the exhibition, mm. but do you feel that that discourse is, is um, reaching say, the, the marketing boardrooms across Australia? 
Well, um, yeah, that was fantastic research that the uh, Victorian Women's Trust did. And I, I, I read that before I had that experience of people being so open talking about it. So I think it's, I think it's very true. Um, they had a, and the survey was quite wide. Um, but I also, there's another sort of not-for-profit called Sheepwool, who are looking mm. at gender equity in advertising in Australia. Um, they're only about a year old, and they're trying to address that problem of inequity in the ad um, world, in ad agencies, and they're taking bias training into the studios to help make that change occur and give mm. that opportunity a chance to, to get its fingernails in and be stuck and stick, you know, in the walls. Um, mm. So it, I don't think it will ever happen by itself. Um, you know, I don't know if you ever watched Mad Men. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, my, that's probably another impetus behind this um, project was that my first job after I graduated as a graphic designer was as a junior art director in a global mm. agency, and it was just terrific. I mean, I say it was 100 years ago, but that was the mid-'90s. Mm. And, um, you know, I have graduates now that go off to ad agencies come and see me a couple of years later and say, oh, my God, why, would, why didn't you tell me what it was going to be like? And mm. I'm like, oh, no, it's still not changing. So, um, you know, I've also done um, uh, research on the awards they do for advertising in Australia and the Hall of Fame for the award for the advertising agencies in Australia has never put a woman into the Hall of Fame. Right. Um, okay. Interesting. It's still just men, so it's it might be surprising to hear that it's it's still not changing. It's still very slow to change, and um, yeah. But I think Sheeple are one sort of group of people who are making efforts to to make those changes. I've had the absolute pleasure to be speaking with Dr. Jane Connery regarding, or, or Jane as she prefers, regarding her fascinating work <laughs> on the history of menstrual product advertising. Dr. Connery, we could keep going, but um, we've we've hit we're out of time. I'm afraid. Thank you so much for joining me on the Glasshouse today. Thanks very much for having me. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Dr. Brian Martin is a descendant of the Muruwari, Bunjalung and Kamilaroi peoples and is Associate Dean, Indigenous and Senior Lecturer at Monash University. He joins me today to discuss that uh, discuss the Monash University Museum of Art's current exhibition, Tree Story. It's an exhibition that brings creative practices from around the world to create a forest of ideas relating to critical environmental and sustainability issues. Dr. Martin, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss the exhibition with me today. Great, thank you for having me. So I'm I'm really interested uh, with where did the um, and if you'll excuse this the seed for this uh, idea of this exhibition start. It it feels so collaborative. I'm really interested in the evolution prior to even discussing the works themselves. Um, well, sort of a, an idea that came from Charlotte Bay, our director of the the, the museum at Monash Monash University. Um, it was a collaborative um, sort of curation between myself and Charlotte. Um, so it's something that she was very keenly interested in, and it just so happens that that's what my practice is about, not only trees but about country. So there's a synergy between those sort of two interests that sort of brought it together. I also really enjoyed the term that 
um, Monash or Muma. I, I, I don't know if that's the correct pronunciation of that acronym, but it sounds fun to say. Um, the term forest of ideas. So what does that mean in relation to the works that are, that are being exhibited currently? Well, I think the, the vision, especially with Charlotte's uh, in the show as well, is, is, is she coined that term for a forest of ideas. And, and really, I, I, I think we're sort of going to define 2021 as year of the tree, I think, mm. because it's, I, I think it's interesting just in terms of how many artists throughout a long time have been, look, not only in, in Indigenous Australia but across the world, but looking at trees, looking at land, looking at country, and how... There's so many like relationalities between that and between the non-human and the human, and especially in the current climate of when we think about sustainability in the future. So it's looking at deep history in order to look at the future as well. So I think there's a whole there's a whole range of ideas, not only about environmental sustainability issues, but but also about the, the, about place and, and the importance of country as well. I um I loved Kent Morris's work and how he discusses the lack of incorporation of Indigenous systems thinking and knowledge and um I, I watched a, a video of of him walking through and explaining um one of his his pieces that's currently showing. Would you mind describing his work um for listeners so they can visualise it somewhat because it seems um it was hearing him run through the the um the space was was just just fascinating to hear his discussion. Yeah, well, Ken's work, I mean, Ken um, is an amazing Barkindji artist and his work, which focuses on a specific tree on Bumwarang country, which is not far from where he is, uh, I think down at St Kilda, and he's he's dissecting and image-making and, and flattening it out through photography and repetition of, of the image is interesting in the work, especially how he talks and translates the work that's sort of like a wallpaper on the wall, then he has specific photographic works framed, and it goes from sort of black and white to colour. So it talks about the narrative of, of the past to the present to the future. And one thing that's, I, I thought, is significant in, in Kent's work is that relationship to Indigenous knowledge production, the importance of, of country, and that relationship between the past, present, future. So there's a different articulation of time I think that he, he represents and presents in his practice and in particular this work. I found it very optimistic as well and very positive and um, in the fact that you, you, you discussed time then, that he's discussing the um, inclusion and incorporation of um, Indigenous systems thinking and knowledge and then he's thinking ahead and, and future considering those ideas. And I found it um, very, very hopeful and um, very... Uh, Heartwarming to consider where he believes that these um, these ideas will will move to and travel to in the future. Absolutely, and I think that, that and, and I think that the positive or the, the optimism in that is, is also see an indigenous relationship with the world is premised on kinship, kinship with people, mm. kinship with country, and one thing we can learn as a collective in Australia, but also in the international space with other First Nations peoples. Indigenous cultures really don't really have that notion of outsider, insider idea. So if you're walking on someone's country, you're part of that country, you leave the carbon footprint, you you are relational to those people, to those countries. Therefore, 
you have responsibility. So it's, it's a, a simple idea, but it's also something that is a prevalent idea about sustainability, and that's why Indigenous knowledge production is inclusive. It's not this exclusive idea of, well, no, you can't be part of it. It's about how do we relate to the world and how do we relate to each other. That's, that's a, a beautiful um, segue, Dr Martin, into talking about your work that you're um, exhibiting as part of this show. And you used um, a word that I was unfamiliar with when you were describing it. And I'm referring to the phrase, um, and I hope I pronounce this correctly, methexical countryscape. Um, and I'd love for you to discuss your work that's showing and also um, unpack that, that term and the etymology of that term for us because listening to you talk about it was, uh, was really fascinating and I'd love for our listeners to experience that as well. Yeah, yeah um, of course. So, so mephexical comes from the, is garnered from the Greek word mephexis. And mephexis <clears throat> really means a, a, a reverberation or commemorative act usually conducted by a number of people together to bring something into existence. So it's sometimes referred to as things like you know, dance, especially thumping the ground together um, to, to bring about music, to bring about sound, to be about bringing images together, a whole range of things. So it's about bringing something into existence. And so the works that are in the show um, that I've done, one's on the wall, which is sort of like a representation of country, one work is on the floor, which invites a viewer to walk on the drawing. The exhibition he was discussing is on at the Monash um, University Museum of Art. There's videos online where you can actually witness people walking over the art and to experience uh, country there. One of the other pieces that I, uh, I really, really found fascinating was the work of Tanya Brugera. Um, so I, uh, she's worked with, she's a Cuban artist and has often had very um, confronting work. And one of the pieces, uh, what she has done is created a card catalogue of people that have passed away. Many of them Indigenous people uh, passed away due to trying to protect their land and keep their land safe. And so one of the acts will involve um, a tattoo artist in a non-permanent way, tattooing the names of those people that have passed away onto the arms of audience members. The exhibition is is really, really beautiful. So you can check that out at Monash or go to MUMA online. So if you search for that, you'll, you'll get all the information there. That's it for the show today. I have to uh, thank my guests, Dr. Jane Connery and Dr. Brian Martin. Stay tuned. You're on Triple R. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website 